0: This morning we are coming to the very end of our journey through the books of Samuel. Remember, as we've been working our way through these books, we've seen that God has been at work among His people uh, to provide a king of His own choosing, that through this king He would rule over, defend, protect, deliver His people, And through this King David, he gave a promise that he would bring a king who would rule and reign over all things in heaven and all things in earth for eternity. Uh, We've seen that even in chapters where God hasn't been mentioned, where God's people have been uh, in disobedience and been led astray, God is still at work. And we are really going to see this in this last chapter as we encounter our God at work in the lives of His people. Uh, There's going to be some things that we encounter in this chapter that will challenge us as we see our God and realize the depth of His character. And there's going to be things that deeply encourage us. So if you would, look with me in chapter 24 of the book of 2 Samuel. If you're following along there in one of the black Bibles there in your seats, this is on page 277. Uh, We're going to look at the whole chapter together. So please follow along with me there in your copy of God's Word. Again, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, And number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May Yahweh your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aurora, and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jezer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan. And from Dan they went around to Sidon. And they came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the city of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the Negeb of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all, throughout all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to Yahweh, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Yahweh, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of Yahweh came to the prophet Gad. David's seer saying, Go, say to David, thus says Yahweh, 3 things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am great. I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of Yahweh, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So Yahweh sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, Yahweh relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of Yahweh was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, Then David spoke to Yahweh when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to Yahweh on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as Yahweh commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, "'Why has my lord the king come to his servant?' David said, "'To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to Yahweh that the plague may be averted from the people.' Then Arana said to David, "'Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood.' All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May Yahweh your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, No, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to Yahweh my God that cost me nothing. So David uh, bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to Yahweh and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So Yahweh responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You have given us Your Word. We thank You that in the former days You spoke to and You revealed Yourself to Your people through Your prophets. In these last days, You have uh, definitively spoken to us, Your people, through Your Son and You continue to speak to us as You reveal Yourself through the Scriptures. Uh, Holy Spirit, we pray uh, that You would continue accomplishing Your work, accomplishing and uh, redeeming a people for Yourself, purifying a people for our Heavenly Father, that we may rest in Him and hope in Him and live righteously before Him because He has declared us righteous in Jesus. That is in His... Name that we pray. Amen. Uh, kids, if you want to keep track of uh, uh, some words uh, this morning, you can do that. Or you can draw me a picture. Uh, there's some, uh, some interesting stuff that's, uh, that's happening here of this angel of destruction coming be- before uh, the people of God. But the, as we encounter God in this passage, some things that you can listen for is we're going to see that our God is a sovereign God. We're going to see that our God is a merciful God, and we're going to see that our God is an atoning God. So if you want to listen for sovereign, merciful, and atoning, uh, you, can, uh, you can do that. And show me your count after the, uh, after the service, or we'll stick your picture up here over on our picture wall. Uh, so the, the first thing that we see as we encounter God in this passage is that we have and we serve a sovereign God It's in light of God being a sovereign God that we as His people must bow before Him. The sovereignty of this God is really shocking. It can be troubling for us in this passage. Notice what we read there at the beginning. Again, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and He, Yahweh, incited David against them, saying, Go, number, Israel and Judah. God is angry with Israel, God is the one who incites David to go up and number the people. And then what happens? It's in light of David's numbering the people that God judges and punishes the people. It's David's reflection on how he goes about carrying out this census that David declares later in verse 10, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. He calls what he has done iniquity and foolishness. How is this right? How can God say and call David to do one thing and then turn around and judge and punish the people for that thing that David does? Can our God be righteous in this? How is it that God and what is his relationship to sin, to evil, to wickedness in the world, how are humans responsible for these things if God has a, a, a part in what is going on? How do we make sense of this? Because we see here that as the author of 2 Samuel is revealing these things to us, our God is sovereign over everything, even over the sin of individual humans. What do we do? Well, uh, we need to start with what we know. What do we know? We know that what we are reading is the word of God. God has revealed himself to us in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. These scriptures are without error. God reveals himself clearly and sufficiently to us, his people. Um, Although the the main things as far as salvation goes with Christ are, are, are clear, there are some things that are unclear. What do we do with things like this that are confusing and bring up questions for us? That's where the next principle comes in, is we use the clearer portions of Scripture to help us interpret things that are unclear and that we struggle to make sense of, like God's sovereignty as it's related to sin. What is clear in God's Word about the character of our God? He's righteous. He is perfect. He does not sin, nor does He tempt anyone to sin. We must uphold that. Whatever we're reading, we must know that is clear, and so we might not understand exactly what's going on, but we need to hold that truth firm. What else do we know? We're finite. Our God that we worship who has created and made all things, who has redeemed us, and who is revealing Himself to us, is infinite in His being, and His wisdom, and His power, and His knowledge. It shouldn't surprise us that there are things about our God and about the way He works and His activity in the world that we don't understand and do not grasp. He is revealing Himself to creatures we, there will be things that are a mystery to us that we don't understand about the sovereignty and the purposes and the work of our God. Those are the things that are clear. But as we look at this, there's things in Scripture uh, that, that begin to help us understand more about what's going on. Uh, here uh, in First Samuel, it says that God incited uh, David to do this. Uh, Over in 1 Chronicles, chapter 21, it's a parallel account of what's going on. And the author of Chronicles, as he writes and recounts this to us, listen to what what he says in 1 Chronicles 21. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Well, is it God? God? Is it Satan? Or, as we're seeing in both of these chapters, is it David? The answer is yes. All are active. All have a part in what is going on. God is sovereign over all of it, but He is you. The good and righteous and holy God is using and carries out His purposes And His intentions that He determined and prepared and decreed before the foundation of the world for His own glory is carried out through the sinful acts of others. He is the primary cause, but He brings about His work and His purposes and His will through secondary causes, through individuals. Uh, Think about another place in Scripture where we see this, where both God is active and Satan is active. Do you think of another place in Scripture where that happens? Job. The opening chapters of Job. Satan, in his wickedness and his desire to undermine God's work in the world and to accuse and call Job's character into question, he comes before God desiring to, to, to mess around with Job. And God says, yes, go and consider Job. As Satan multiple times comes back to God, Job loses his property, he loses his children, he loses his health. Satan is the one who is active and doing those things in Job's life. But listen to how Job evaluates what is going on. In chapter 2 of the book of Job, Job's wife comes to him and said, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? In verse 9, curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Job is saying both the good things and the horrible and difficult and tough things that he's experiencing in his life are coming from God. And the author of Job says this, coming from God's Word, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job attributes God as being the one who is at work We already know what Job doesn't know, that Satan is active, but still the Scriptures say God is at work. His desire to test, to show the righteousness and the faithfulness of Job, Satan's intentions to undermine God's work and to accuse His people. God is testing Job. Satan is the one who tempts Job. Uh, James tells us uh, God tempts no one. Let's think of a, another example. Over in Genesis, as in Genesis uh, chapter 45, as Joseph is reflecting on what his brothers have done uh, and how he arrived in Egypt. You remember what happened? They sold him into slavery in their, jealous, in their jealousy and their wickedness and their evil. But listen to what Joseph says in verses 5-8. through He says to his brothers, Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in your land these two years, and there are five years in which there there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Who sent him here? Well, the brothers did, but Joseph is saying the ultimate one who sent me here was God. What was his intentions? To preserve life. God had righteous intentions and purposes. And how did he carry out his righteous and good intentions and purposes? the wickedness and the evil of, jo- of Joseph's brothers. In chapter 50, as Job reflects on this again, he says, God intended it for good. You intended it for evil. Both had these intentions going on. Was God forcing the brothers to do something against their will? No. They freely acted and did what was flowing out of their hearts. They wanted to destroy Joseph. What did God intend and purpose by using the sin and and decreeing the sinful acts of these free individuals that they would be responsible for? He's using it for his good purposes. Are there other places we see this in Scripture? Think about God's judgment on Israel, where he raises up and he uses this language in the prophets. I am raising up a nation to judge and punish my people. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the prophets, some of them have trouble. The book of Habakkuk is the prophet struggling and trying to understand how could a righteous and holy God use a wicked nation in their sin to judge and purify and punish His people. But God, the Scriptures affirm, God is doing what? He's righteously judging the sin of His people by using the sinful actions of the Babylonians, the Syrians, the Medes, and Persians. In fact, Isaiah, as he's reflecting on the Medes who will rise up and destroy and punish the Babylonians, he calls them His mighty men. So what do we see here? If if God can use the sinful acts of people outside of His people to accomplish His purposes... Here, what is he doing? He's using the free actions of David that he's responsible for in his sin to accomplish his purposes of carrying out his just punishment on his people Israel. David is responsible for his sin. David's not being forced to do anything against his will. And God is the one who is the righteous one here who is punishing rightly his people. We really can struggle to grasp and see how this can come together, but ultimately, where can we look? We looked at the cross. You remember we've looked at this multiple times as we've been going through uh, through uh, First and, and Second Samuel because there's been some difficult passages like we've come to this before, but it's important that we go back to these because uh, we want to make sure that we are responding appropriately to what the Scriptures teach us about the character of our God and His actions in the world. Listen to what Peter says in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 about God's purposes for the crucifixion of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Why did Jesus die? Because it was according to the foreordained, purposed intentions of our God. How was it carried out? Through the hands of lawless men. Later on in Acts, Peter, Peter and the, the disciples focus on it again. And they say this, "...truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate." along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to do. The most evil and heinous act that ever occurred or was committed by humanity on the face of this planet did not happen outside of the purpose, the decrees, and the intentions of our God. Yet what did it accomplish? The salvation of humanity. Did, was he righteous and good and just in the carrying of it out? Yes. Were those who slaughtered Jesus guilty of their sin? Yes. How these things come together in such a way that humanity is responsible for their sin and none of the the sinful actions are attributed for God, this is hard for us to grasp and understand. But what do we do? We recognize there's going to be things about our God's work in the world that we don't understand because I'm a creature. We submit to how God has revealed Himself to us in His Word and we respond the way we see the rest of those who are teaching these very same things in the Scriptures respond. You know how the prophets respond when they encounter these confusing things of God sovereignly working in the world, accomplishing His purposes, and using the sinful acts of men to bring about His purposes in the lives of His people? They respond in worship. They proclaim the glory and the, the greatness of their of our God. The, the disciples here, after they are persecuted for proclaiming the good news of Jesus, they proclaim God and they worship Him for His sovereign acts of bringing about the suffering of Jesus through the sinful acts of rebellious and wicked men. Paul later, when he... Encounters and has to, to is trying to 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 comprehend God's sovereignty as it relates to uh, uh, to, to salvation and human responsibility. There in uh, in Romans eleven, he responds in a great response of praise, bowing and worship before his God. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given to him that we would repay? For from him and to him and through him are all things. When we come to face with the sovereignty of our God, and we see his character, the proper response for us as his people are to bow and worship, because we recognize and we realize he rules over everything. His plan is being carried out, and we need not fear. Israel needed not fear in the midst of this, The God had rejected his purposes It was all happening according to His plan and His purpose because He is the sovereign one. And therefore, we as His people must bow before our sovereign God. But we don't just see the sovereignty of our God in this passage. We see the mercy of our God. We also encounter a merciful God. And the proper response of humanity before a merciful God is to repent. you see David doing that? Notice what he says in verse 10. David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to Yahweh, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. Later in that verse, he describes what he has done as iniquity. It comes up again later over in verse 17 where David responds and he says, I have sinned. I have done wickedly. David acknowledges his sin and his rebellion against God. What is his sin? Was it just numbering people? No, it wasn't. There, there were provisions in the, the Old Testament law and in the in the people There were times where they could and were to take a census and account of the people God telling David just to count the people wasn't a sin and of itself What begins to come into question though is what struck David Is the manner and the motivation for why he was carrying out this census? Why was he counting the people? How do we get an insight and an understanding about what is, the Scriptures are showing us about what was wrong with what David was doing here? Remember, what we've, uh, we've seen this, uh, these last several chapters of 2 Samuel are, are set apart uh, as a, a closing portion of the book from chapters 21 to 24. In chapter 21, we began with the sin of a king bringing about uh, punishment on the people remember that was Saul's slaughter of the gibeonites here in this last chapter book ended in 24 we again encounter the sin of the king bringing about punishment on the people of god Saul and David compared move in a chapter back from 24 a chapter forward from 21 what do we encounter uh, the recounting information about the the great acts of faith and trust of David's military men, their their great accomplishments in battle. Then move in again, and what do we see? These two songs that David composed, talking about the surety of God bringing about His promises and establishing His kingdom, and David reflecting and proclaiming that this will come about not through his mighty his might, not through his strength, not through his military ability to pull back the bow or swing the sword, but it will be through God working. Saul misuses the military to, uh, to slaughter the Gibeonites to gain land for Israel. Here we see David numbering God's people. Numbering them for what? Well, Notice what it tells us in verse 9. Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king, and in Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. David here, in some way or some form, is wanting to seek to misuse the military, to expand his kingdom in ways God didn't intend. Maybe. To find his hope and his trust and his confidence. Not in his God, but in his military might and the amount of men that he has? Think about it in your life. Why do you count things? Why do you count your money and check your bank account? And when there's a lot there, do you feel a little bit more at ease? Is there less anxiety? and worry and fear because you feel like now that I know I have this there, I don't have to worry about tomorrow or the future? Think about other things that we may count. Do you count your friends? How many invitations you've gotten to what they're doing? Is your security found in the number of those who you're surrounded by? Or the status that they have? Or what access they may Bring you to? Maybe you have been counting points. The amount of points you scored last soccer season. Or what you did against your friend in that game you played last night. Your significance, your safety is found in how much you can beat and, and defeat other people in your athletic endeavors. Maybe you count grades. Maybe you count children. Maybe you count promotions. Maybe you're counting the rooms in your house. Maybe you're counting the days of your life. Maybe you're counting your sexual encounters and the fulfillment that you may or may not find there. Notice David's response to counting things and looking to those for significance, for safety, for security. His heart struck him, and he recognized this is sin. But notice what he does with it. Listen. Listen to what he says. I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Yahweh, please take away The iniquity of your servant. How in the world? How in the world can David think in this great sin that he's done that he could dare come before this God, this righteous and holy one, and dare to ask that his iniquity would be put away? It's only if he understands that this God is a merciful God. Notice, how does David describe his sin and what he has done? Look there again in verse, verse 10. I have sinned greatly. Look over to what, how David describes God in verse, verse 14. David sinned greatly. David says to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of Yahweh, for his mercy is great. The greatness of David's sin is met with the greatness of the mercy of God. David's sins great. God's mercy is greater. You see, what motivates David to bring his sin before his God is it's driven by his understanding of the mercy and the character of his God. And do we not see that here? David doesn't just say it, he experiences it. You notice here in verse 10, David acknowledges his sin before God, and then look in verse 11. When David arose in the morning, God's there, speaking through the prophet Gad and announcing and proclaiming to David what the judgment will be, but he gives David a part to play in choosing what it will be. David, again, as he communicates and he acknowledges his sin before God, God sends, he chooses the the pestilence to come. God sends the destroying angel among the people. But look in verse verse, uh, 16. It was supposed to be for three days, But 70,000 men die when the angel starts to stretch his hand out against Jerusalem. Yahweh relents. He looks on the suffering of his people and he has mercy. And what does he proclaim? He says, it is enough. Now stay your hand. David said, I'm going to entrust myself to the merciful God. And what did he experience from that God? Mercy. And the three days of famine, or of pestilence, were cut short. And then David again in verse 17, he proclaims, I have sinned, I have done wickedly. And then it says in verse 18, and came that day to David from Gad. God comes to him. God speaks. The merciful God responds to the prayers of His King. This isn't just true of David. This is true of you and me. Because we have a merciful God who hears the confession and the repentance of His people, and He responds in mercy and in grace. And we too can boldly come before our God, acknowledging the greatness of our sin. We do not need to fear exposing or bringing anything up in our life. We've already recognized we serve a sovereign God. Do you not think He already knows the depth of your sin? He knows it more than even you do. So we can boldly come before Him acknowledging how great our sin is because His mercy is even greater. And we've seen that in the provision of Christ for us. That He would come into our world offering His life on our account. That forgiveness could be extended to the people of God. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to do what? Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Should this great mercy of God motivate and say, oh, then it doesn't matter. If His mercy is so great, then I can do whatever I want. I can sin, 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 sin. No. It should drive us. It should drive us to repentance and call upon and look to this merciful God, we encounter a sovereign God before whom we bow and worship. We encounter a merciful God before whom we must come in repentance. And lastly, we encounter an atoning God to whom we must appeal. Notice, notice what David says in verse 17. He speaks to Yahweh because he sees the angel with his arms stretched out. He's stopped as he's getting ready to come to Jerusalem. And he says this, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? David doesn't know what we're told there in verse 1, that the anger of Yahweh is burning against Israel. They've done something. We don't know what it is, but they're justly deserving God's displeasure. David has sinned as well. So notice what he says, though. I've sinned greatly. I've done wickedly. These sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Here, David, the king after God's own heart, the one who calls his God and his king his shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd. Here, David reflecting on his people as sheep, the shepherd is willing to lay his life down for the sheep. I have sinned. Let your justice and your wrath be poured out on me. May I be the one who experiences the wrath and the punishment, and would you spare your sheep? You know what God says? No. You see? Look in verse 18. That same day, As David said that to him, God comes through the prophet Gad and says, Go and raise an altar to Yahweh. You see, David, you experiencing the wrath of God is not sufficient, because you are a sinner. We have a God who is merciful, but He is an atoning God. His wrath must be satisfied. And you, as the wicked and foolish and sinful king, you cannot satisfy the wrath of God on behalf of the people. You would only satisfy God's wrath on behalf of yourself. Something greater is needed. But notice what the atoning God does He provides a way for the wrath of the people to be put away. He is the one who comes to David through the prophet who commands him to build an altar. Notice what it says, that he did it according to what God commanded in verse 9. And what does he offer? He offers the blood of these oxen in this place. And what is God's response to this offer of atonement? Look in verse 25. And David built there an altar to Yahweh and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So, Yahweh responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. To what did God respond? These sacrifices. Blood must be shed. The oxen died and suffered the wrath and the punishment of God in place of the people. David needed it too. You see, what we see here is that we need one greater than David. And here, God's provision of one that would die in the place of His people to remove and deal with their wrath, later we see how is it fulfilled in Jesus. The heir of David. The true King who comes. The perfect Shepherd. Who when He says... Let me die on behalf of the people. God is pleased. God is pleased to lay on Him the iniquity of us all. God is pleased to chastise Him in our place. God is pleased to punish His only Son, the righteous and perfect and innocent King, so that the wrath that we as God's sinful people can be taken away. Jesus is the Good Shepherd, who lays down his life for his sheep, and he accomplishes atonement through his blood? God's justice is not put aside. It's not compromised. Because God himself took on flesh. He enters into our world, and the perfect man died in our place. Who, who is who is this God? Who is this sovereign one who has such mercy? and grace that He would give us His only Son through whom His wrath will be perfectly satisfied. Have you looked to? Are you trusting in? Have you placed your faith and your hopes in that King, in Jesus? Nothing else will deliver you. No one else can save you. There is nowhere else to find refuge or peace but in the perfect King who dies to deliver His people and to bring us into His kingdom. If you have not trusted in Christ, the the sad news of this passage is that the wrath and justice still awaits you. The good news, though, is that if you call out to this merciful God and you plea before Him for the atonement of the perfect One to take His wrath away from you, He will answer yes. And that promise will never be thwarted or compromised because He's the sovereign One. If you have placed your faith in Him, hear and know this, Your sovereign and merciful King looks upon any and every sin that you have committed or ever ever will commit and says, because of the death of the King who has taken your wrath on Himself, you are forgiven. You are washed clean. And my judgment will never, ever fall on you again. What awaits you is my joy and my delight. Enter into my kingdom, my sheep and my children. the good news of the Gospel. Praise be to God. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your perfect plan of salvation, of redemption. We could never have dreamed up something like this. Your grace is amazing. We pray that uh, as your people, we would continue to be humbled uh, by all aspects of your character, your sovereignty, uh, your mercy, your atoning grace and perfections on our behalf. Uh, We pray uh, that as your people, as we continue to encounter you in the Scriptures, that our hearts would be moved to love, to worship, and to hope, to allegiance and loyalty until Christ returns. In His name we pray. Amen.